Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast, episode number 170. We're joining you every week to talk IT career progression and bring you the advice we wish we'd been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore on Twitter, filling in for my normal co-host, John White, at VJourneyman. We are both pre-sales technical engineers with backgrounds in IT operations. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. It's that time again, ladies and gentlemen, time to kick off a new series of interviews. This time, our guest is Joe Shinovy. He's a global field principal at VMware. And Joe spent some time in the military, specifically in the Air Force. He's going to share with us what that experience was like, how it helped him get into the technology industry, and what it was like to transition to civilian life. A little bit about how he gives back to the veterans community today. And he'll also talk about how he leveraged curiosity throughout his entire journey to what he does today. And he'll give us some tips on how stating or signaling what you want can help you get promoted and some tips for approaching that conversation with your manager. Without further ado, let's get to it. Part one of our interview with Joe Shenevy. Joe Shinovy, thanks so much for joining us on Nerd Journey. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. You bet. Let's start by telling the listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do today, please, sir. Sure, certainly. Well, I, I work at VMware, just like you, Nick. Uh, I've been with the company nine years. I'm a principal solutions architect, and I support our Dell Synergy business. As you know, Dell was a parent of ours, and then we just spun the company off from, from Dell in November, and so... I've been with that business or helping really curate that business of ours with Dell for the last four and a half, five years. And if memory serves, you're also part of the global field principal community at VMware. Can you just share a little bit with listeners about what that entails? Yeah, absolutely. I started to learn about the Octo Global Field and Industry Program uh, quite a few years ago, primarily through interactions with members uh, that I had conversed with throughout my VMware career. But uh, in my capacity now as a global field principal, I'm a part of a program within the office of the CTO that really acts as a bridge between what we call the field, uh, which are technologists or individual contributors who work in a pre-sales or a post-sales capacity. We don't align to our business groups that develop the products, but we're out there in the trenches, so to speak, talking to customers, interfacing with customers and what have you. And so I'm a part of that, I'll say, small group of field members who are a part of that program and graduated, so to speak, to the Global Field Principal Program in 2021. Congratulations. That's a that's a highly, we'll say highly coveted and kind of an elite role in our industry. And we'll definitely dive into how you got there, Joe, because I know you didn't just come into VMware as a global field principal, I want to hit the rewind button with you just a little bit. 
there have been some other members of the sh- or guests on the show who have had military experience, but I'm curious if you could just share a little bit about yours and how it got you into technology. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's somewhat of a meandering story, but it really starts from the fact that my father was in the military. That's really how I was born and raised as, as, a, as a person. I actually was born in Thailand. You know, so being born in the military, it's sort of a, a way of life that I had really understood from the very get-go, and that led me to my own journey uh, into joining the military, primarily as a way to get into college, to fund college, and really, again, because I was raised in the military, grew up as, a, as an Air Force brat, so to speak, it was very comfortable for me to kind of make that leap from, you know, being a kid who has a military father to being in the military myself. But I did it really for for reasons of, you know, furthering myself and, and needing to really find a mechanism to fund college. And I think a lot of folks uh, who join the military, you, you know, do that, uh, do it for that reason. Um, and I think it's an excellent way to really see the world, uh, grow your skill set and, you know, find your journey as a person. And I certainly use that platform, so to speak, for that re- very reason. I was always technically skilled, you know, growing up as a as a student, and I gravitated to technology. I worked a lot with computers when I was in high school, went to school on a Air Force ROTC scholarship for electrical engineering. And because I was in ROTC and on a scholarship, you know, my path to the military was through ROTC. So I graduated, became an officer went to officer training and then out into the military field, so to speak, doing communications and computer systems. Now, when you go into the military, do you get to pick the type of job they give you? Or did that just kind of fundamentally get assigned to you randomly? Well, it's a little bit of both, uh, interestingly enough. And it really comes down to, one, what is the need of the Air Force at the given time? And, And as I said, I applied for an Air Force scholarship in electrical engineering, and that was what I was awarded as far as the scholarship. So I was pretty much pegged to study that, and I had the possibility of changing my degree, but there's always a risk of potentially the Air Force saying, well, we needed an, uh, someone trained in electrical engineering you know, to, go into the, you know, to go into the field. If you change your career, there's a potential where you know, they may not have a scholarship appropriate for that. So I was, you know, sort of locked into electrical engineering. And long story short, obviously, I'm not an electrical engineer today, but that was what I studied out of the get-go. But uh, when I graduated, the way that the Air Force works, when you're in ROTC at least, I got to choose my top three career fields. And I think satellite communications was one of them because I was familiar with the career field I think I, I looked at flight test engineering, where you get to be in the backseat of, you know, a jet fighter or what have you when they're doing testing. So you're t- testing systems. And then I, uh, I forgot what my third one was, but undoubtedly it was not communications and computer systems. However, because I had an electrical engineering degree and I took communications courses as a part of my coursework for my, my bachelor's degree, the Air Force saw that there was a fit and they had a need in communications and computer systems. And lo and behold, that's what I got selected for, even though it was not my first or second choice. That was, I think, I'm not quite sure if it was was even my third choice, 
but that's where I was assigned was that career field very specifically because of the Air Force's needs. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think sometimes we're placed into situations where someone has a need and we are assigned a specific role and we have to step up and fill the gap. How? What was your, what was your attitude or feeling toward the subject matter as you got into it? You know, it was somewhat of a, well, this is what I'm going to do. I'll, I'll find out once I get into it and see how, how well I like it. Having done internships at NASA, working on computers, Macs, and the like, IT, although I didn't call it at that time as a, as a naive college student, was very natural to me, so to speak. So working with computer systems was very natural. I wanted to do more of the communications or telecommunications side, but this, this career field was kind of a happy medium. So when I actually got into training, it worked well in terms of my mindset that, okay, this utilizes some of the stuff that I had studied in terms of telecommunications and would allow me really to broaden that perspective. And then as I got into uh, doing my duties, I was actually stationed in the middle of the country in Oklahoma, where I am now, in a, an Air Force wing that focused very specifically on deploying IT systems for the greater Air Force. And so that gave me a great background, leading me to the career that I have now in my civilian life in IT. And so I'd say it was not necessarily what my first choice was, but ultimately it gave me a career that I've been in since you know I graduated college. So I think it was wonderful that it happened that way. I didn't choose it, but because I was in the right place, right time, uh, the Air Force had a need, I had a skill, and it matched. Nice. And how heavy was there, was the training program you went through? I mean, did they do a lot of training? Was it mostly, hey, we're going to put you in here and there's not as much theory, more practical? Yeah, I'd say it's probably a little bit more intermediate in, in terms of how some of the training is devised. As an officer, uh, one thing that I learned very quickly was the positions that officers are put in are primarily on the leadership side, uh, you know, and for quite obvious reasons. Not necessarily that I necessarily was trained in just leadership. I had some leadership courses as, uh, as a part of my Air Force ROTC coursework. However, the way that the military is structured is that you know we have enlisted members and we have officers. Officers are primarily look you know focused on managerial aspects, program management, leadership stuff. And uh, from a telecommunications and computer system standpoint, I was I went into six months of training primarily on kind of the basics of what the officer role would be and largely was focused on planning, I'll say white collar style of IT leadership. But it was, I'll say, technology based. So there was a lot of practical elements into it. There are some elements that I have no remember, uh, no memory of because it wasn't really useful, like how to triangulate your position using maps and what have you, you know, have no need to do that these days, but that was a part of the coursework. Never just step outside and do that? Yeah. Yeah. You know, with my iPhone, uh, I do that all the time, yeah. right? Or, you know, how to, how to read a compass, right? Topography maps. So those are, you know, some of the things that we go through that uh, I think everybody learns something new that they don't necessarily utilize, but fundamentally what training that I did really utilize out of the get-go was here's all the systems that the Air Force is going to be responsible for. 
here's the type of skill set that we need you to go into. And so that basic six month of training really was geared toward that core element of here's all the necessities that you need to understand going into the role. Then once I was placed in the job, once I got to my final duty station here in Oklahoma, Oklahoma City at Tinker Air Force Base and got to the wing, that's really where the rubber hits the tarmac, so to speak, in that you know, I got the hands-on practical experience. I started out doing systems planning, IT systems planning, at, I'll say at the base level. So we have bases throughout the United States as well as internationally. And I went into a unit first responsible for overseeing vendors who were doing program and systems implementations. And I was responsible for overseeing the testing. Then I went into a unit as a part of that wing that focused on high-level programs that were either downward directed by the Air Force top level, Pentagon, down to the base, or looking at base requirements that were generated from their communications departments that said, hey, we're lacking a system here. We'd like, you know, a system that provides us X, Y, Z in terms of use cases, what have you. And so I would analyze and assess that and then determine what solutions were out there from the vendor set and then make a recommendation. And so, and then eventually... Uh, later in my Air Force career, I was, uh, and by the way, I was in for four years, so it wasn't a lengthy career, but it was uh, adventurous for, for the amount of time that I was in. I got into actual implementations of systems as a part of my later two years worth of uh, careers in the communications and computer systems field, and that was really what led me to think about you know, what, what's next for me after a military career? And, and as I said, I kind of grew up in the military. So I had a mindset that it wasn't going to be a lifelong career for me because I had grown up into it. My, my dad was a lifelong uh, military person. He was in for 24 years. I decided early on that wasn't going to be the path for me. But being in the role that I was, it put me into a lot of collaboration with outside vendors who were contractors, uh, like EDS, as a matter of fact, who did uh, a lot of the contracts for the Air Force and provided the actual IT systems and the manpower to, to implement some of these systems. So not only were there Air Force folks like myself who would do these implementations, but we had contractors from EDS and several other folks like Lockheed Martin and several uh, contractors of that ilk who would implement systems on behalf of the government. Really, that started me thinking about, well, that's a great type of avenue for me long-term is to stay in this type of career, and I can transition directly into a civilian career utilizing all the skills and experience that I've built up in the last four years of my, my Air Force career. So that's the, sort of the journey that I had as an Air Force officer and an IT guy you know, wearing a, you know, a, a uniform. It sounds like that was kind of your first stint in what we would call a manager type position as well. But you also had some individual contributor responsibilities too. Like, yeah, it was, uh, I'd, I'd say it was a blend of both. It was, um, more akin to matrix management. I didn't have any individual folks that I was responsible for that reported to me. I think a lot of folks have this experience in that you can be an officer in the Air Force, Marines, Army, Navy, and yet not necessarily have enlisted members reporting to you. And so that was one of those folks that really sat in a technical 
job code within the Air Force, so I didn't have direct responsibility for folks who reported under me. However, I would matrix manage folks when we were out in the field, potentially, and we had an implementation or something that we would do together. And so uh, I was more of a, a collaborator, so to speak, with our enlisted members who did a lot of different details with, and other military officers as well. So there was a cadre of us Air Force officers who were communications and computer systems officers, and we worked with individual squadrons throughout the United States who were consisting of enlisted members who were also trained to do a lot of the technical work as well. So the delineation of duties really depends on you know, where you are organizationally within the Air Force. And in a lot of cases, my, my role would be considered, you know, almost like a straight-up IT job, but I was on the planning side, so that was an officer role. And then a lot of the implementation, hands-on work, was given to enlisted members. But I'll tell you, you know, many of those same enlisted members who transitioned to the civilian world, like myself, you know, they had as equal of an opportunity within IT as, as anybody in terms of whether they were an officer or enlisted. So it didn't really matter when I transitioned out whether I was an officer or not. It was really all about the skills that I had learned during my four years in the Air Force. And that collaboration with other people, not only inside the Air Force, but with the contractors who are doing work and the vendors, that's a, that's a great learning opportunity for us no matter what job we're in. You know, you're going to work with people from tech support when you're in the technology space, and you can learn from those people. You can learn from consultants and contractors and vendor contacts you have and just, you know, other customers, in this case, other people inside your company. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it, was, it got me curious as to, you know, what they did day in and day out in their, in their work, you know, because I only had the opportunity to collaborate with some of these folks for maybe two, two weeks, four weeks, or what have you on some of my projects. But it got me asking questions. What do you do day in and day out? How do you like your company? What's the environment like? And so that natural curiosity, I think, is a good hallmark for anyone in any career to have, because those are often the conversations that lead to different doors opening, different opportunities being, you know, presenting themselves. And that's how it led me to really build some relationships that eventually led uh, me to signal that, hey, I'm ready to transition out of the, the Air Force. Do you have any contacts that I can talk to if I wanted to know more about working at EDS? as an example. So that's, that conversation started while I was still in the, uh, in the military. I had made a decision to uh, end my uh, officer career, and I sent off an email to one of the guys that I had met on, a, on an implementation who worked for EDS, and he gave me his business card. And so I, when I made this decision, I just shot him an email, and he put me into contact with uh, some of the folks in uh, EDS's um, external uh, recruiting team and eventually that led me to submitting a resume and eventually I was given an interview and uh, that's how I interviewed with EDS and a couple of other companies too at the same time and but you know as far as fit I you know I, I knew EDS and I knew the type of work they did and after talking to a number of the people you know it was just the right choice for me to, to transition but you know really started with that first conversation and being curious about you know some of those folks and what they did 
And I think that's, you know, something that I've used throughout my career is, you know, be curious about what other people do, you know, and try to really listen and put yourselves in their, in their shoes to understand what they do a day in a day out. Cause one, it helps you relate, but also, you know, if you kind of focus on the success of other people, they often will have a tendency to really want to, to help you back at a some point later point in time. So it's benefited me throughout, you know, several points in my career as well. Yeah. And if you're not asking about what other people do day in and day out, you may not realize that what they do could be a career path for you. Absolutely. It's interesting is that if we, you know, take ourselves out of the equation and it, but it does kind of force you to really look up a little bit. Cause I think, uh, even myself, we, we can get tunnel vision very quickly in terms of Absolutely. our day in and day out, you know, our jobs, but, you know, sitting back and just looking up, having a conversation like we are, I think presents everyone an opportunity to uh, see the landscape in front of them and around them. And, you know, I think we all get into a, a, a situation where at some point in time, we may not be satisfied with what we're doing today because we want to continuously grow. And it's really those discussions and, and looking up and having that conversation with someone else that allows you to really reflect back, am I ready for that transition? Right. And sometimes the growth is outside the company or organization you're in. And it sounds like in your case, it was outside the military. Can you share with us, Joe, some things that maybe people who haven't been in the military don't really understand about transitioning from that life back into civilian life? Yeah, absolutely. There's an adage that when you serve in the military, it is not a job. It is a way of life. And I, and I will say that is very true. While we may wear a uniform for only a portion of the day, you know, you live and breathe being in the military. And when I grew up as an Air Force brat, you know, my dad was in the service, as I said, you know, that's the culture. You know, we, we supported my father in his career, but that was our way of life. You know, it's kind of very insular in that regard is you rely on other military folks and that is your, you know, that it, those are your neighbors. That's who you socialize with. In many respects, it is a culture in and of itself. And transitioning out of that can be difficult because it is insular. You feel comfortable in that because you have other folks who rely on you and, and you rely on them. Putting yourself into a situation or getting yourself out of that mindset sometimes is difficult. And I'd say for me, it was a little bit easier because I had proactively made the choice that my tenure was going to be short. I wasn't going to make it a career. So I knew I had a finite time that I was going to be in. And as an officer, my obligation, since I had an Air Force scholarship, was I was required to be in four years. And that's exactly the, the time that I had fulfilled as an Air Force. So I made that choice early in my career, probably at year two. And I said, okay, this is not going to be a career for me. I want something different, something different from, from what my dad did. I respected the choice that he made, but I knew that wasn't a choice for me. And so that shift toward looking for something beyond that was a little bit easier for me to do and grasp at that point in time. But for folks who stay in longer, it's maybe a little bit more difficult because that culture becomes a little bit more integrated into your daily life. You know, your friends are all in the military. 
in many cases. Your children, you know, get raised in the military. And so that, that, that becomes your world and transitioning out of that world can be a challenge for, for many uh, military members who, who get out of the service and then determining what's next. And in a lot of cases, you know, part of even what I do now as a part of my VMware career is to try to help folks who are transitioning out of the military think through, you know, what their civilian careers could be, especially if they have an IT background. So obviously here at VMware, we're a technology company. Uh, so there's a huge focus for us to really look at being more inclusive, and that includes being inclusive of our of veterans of, of our military services, not only in the United States, but, you know, worldwide, because we are a worldwide company as well. And so there's a lot of skill set that military people bring. When you think of somebody in the military, you don't automatically think technology or IT, but, you know, quite frankly, you know, there is no one picture of what a military person looks like. And so that was something that I think, you know, my career here at VMware really bore out was I got to where I was because of the training that I had received in the military and how I was raised. And I wanted to really help others who are transitioning out, utilize those same skill sets as much as possible. So I, I will do as much as I can when I know of folks who are transitioning out and I will volunteer as a part of our Veterans Powers of Diversity uh, group to facilitate some of those conversations. And I think it's just uh, making it less difficult for that next person who wants to transition out to utilize some of the skills that they've built. And they don't necessarily have to be just technology-focused to really work at a technology company. And that's the other thing that I think many of us in IT understand, that we don't have to... We, I didn't have to go to school to be electrical engineer to get into this career field. There's many people who are great at technology who don't go to school for technology of course and that's the benefit of this career oh yeah so many what we would call non-linear career paths we've had a exactly. number of guests on the show you know from yeah. high school band teacher to to vp of networking right and the progression there all kinds of all kinds of good ones but that's a great point you make about the diversity and inclusion because a lot of companies out there, not even necessarily technology companies, are trying to make it easier for veterans to get jobs after after they're in the military and they have they have openings and programs to, to help you get into the company. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's about really uh, utilizing the adaptivity of folks who serve in our military services. And, and that doesn't matter quite frankly as to what they were doing in the military they could have been a cook they could have been a person who worked in morale and welfare they could have been someone like myself who worked in IT systems they could have been someone who worked in security it doesn't really matter the fact of the matter is folks in the military are trained to be adaptive uh, adaptable to different circumstances and be aware of their situations and i try to utilize that adaptability as a part of my transition into my civilian career, or what I call my civilian career. I've been in a civilian now for many more years than I was in the military, but I still say that way because it came down, you know, it comes down to adaptability. And I've, I've coached folks who are, who were interested in coming to VMware, but didn't necessarily know about the tech industry per se, but they had a military background. I said, well, you know, you were trained in, you know, various things, but part of being in the military means you were adaptable. So talk about how adaptable you were in your military career 
and emphasize, you know, you're able to really adjust to the circumstance and, you know, learn new skill sets and put them into practice. And uh, one of the persons that, that I talked to and coached during my time, I think this was going three years back, he was a, a military lawyer, as a matter of fact, and was interviewing for uh, VMware corporate law role, but didn't have any technology background. So I told him, well, you're adaptable. Talk about how you had to adapt to certain different uh, regulations that you had to adhere to as, as a part of your military law practice or uh, what things you had to do to, to really assess the situation and do due diligence. So there's use skill sets that we learn outside of, you know, kind of like our, I'll say, core training that we're able to utilize because they're more like muscle memory, so to speak. And so many members of the military, I think, are, are able to take advantage of that. And I think a lot of companies like VMware in the technology space are recognizing that. And that's one of the great things that I love about working here is that, you know, early on, there was a lot of leadership who really bought into that, that adaptability and being able to really look into that, that veteran pool for, for resources and, and unique talent and unique uh, skill sets that we bring. Yeah. That makes total sense, and I can appreciate it. I think that maybe all of us struggle to know what we should highlight on our resume to to meet the job description that we read, but I don't think any hiring manager is going to frown upon adaptability as a skill because if you have a job description that you sign up for and get the job for today, it's going to change in six months probably. There's going to be an internal reorganization, refocus, change in mission, maybe not drastic, maybe drastic, I don't know. But still, I think one of the first things we should try to do is see what we've done throughout our past career, wherever that is, and whatever company it was with, military or otherwise, and try and highlight that on the resume so that we can get to the conversation with the hiring manager and share those stories of of how we did it before and how we can use those same skills in a relatable way in what we're asking to do next. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that really comes into play when you have a period in your in your working life where you're looking to do something different. And it's often a, a matter of signaling to the, you know to folks that you're interacting with that you're ready to do something different. And it not isn't necessarily with the company that you're in now, or it may not necessarily be with the team that you're on now, but it's really that ability to have conversations and build relationships. Because I do think that this career really go, comes down to building relationships that are not just unilateral in nature, really. It has to benefit just yourself, but the person that you're relating to. And if you're able to kind of establish those styles of relationships, I think it does lead to, as I said before, doors opening that you may not have considered earlier in your career. Right. It can't always be a relationship where you're asking that other person for something. You need to be providing value in the personal relationship too. Like maybe you can make a connection for them and then someday down the road, hey, remember we talked about X? I'd love to be able to do this other thing. Can you help me? You mentioned signaling you want to do something different, and that's what you did inside the military that to some folks with EDS, Electronic Data Systems, I think. Is that right? Yeah, that's what they started out as Ross Perot's original company, correct? And when you signal what you want to 
someone who can help you get to a new spot, I would imagine that maybe you, you do that before you signal the same to your manager. That's probably a good course of action. And I think in, in a lot, in many respects, depending on how comfortable you are with having direct conversations, and not many people are. And I'd say earlier in my career, I might've been a little bit more hesitant to do that. But I do think that it was always my nature to be a little bit more forthright or to have a little bit more candor in my conversation. So I've, I've had great managers who would allow that type of conversation. So I didn't really hesitate too much to signal I was ready to do something different. And I, I had a lot of supportive managers earlier in my career, especially at EDS, who not only uh, did that themselves, but uh, would allow and grew up in, a, I think, an organizational culture. And it really does come down to company culture, how companies look at lateral moves or internal progressions or what have you. I was comfortable having the conversation and I had managers who were comfortable hearing that uh, and being receptive to that style of conversation and helping someone make, you know, the next step in their careers. And I think you, you know, one of the points that you made earlier was, I don't think anybody tells us early on that once we get into a company or a job, you know, expect changes every six months or what have you. But that inevitably is what happens is every organization goes through change, uh, whether it's at the leadership level, at the team level, or at the individual level. Uh, but no one really walks us through that. And I think it takes having those conversations, and it's not always a natural conversation to have, but if you're able to be forthright with who you are working for or behalf, I think it behooves everybody to start having those styles of conversations because it does help one set expectations as to, you know, what's going to make you happy, but also how you can be of benefit to, you know, that person that you're working for, but the company that you're working on behalf of as well. You know, there's a lot of positions that I would not have gotten into had I not approached my manager to said, I'm ready to do something different. And maybe that's a really good interview question, Joe, for hiring managers. How is what you do today different or how has it changed from when you started at the company and how have you dealt with those challenges and just see what they say? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I, I don't know if many hiring managers are ready for that question. I think that would be an, a very interesting question. That's a great question to put back on, you know, a hiring manager. I, I, I like it because in many respects, you know, you're expected to be uh, asked questions about who you are, but you should always want to know and understand the inner workings of the company that you might want to work for. What's it really like? How do I, you know, if I want to make step two in three years, what's that process look like? You know, I think that answer that comes back can be telling mm -hmm. in terms of the company culture and their ability to really foster a career once you get into a place. There are, there are I think, jobs that we know that are transitional. They're temporary. They're finite. And there's other places that we might uh, want to go to that ultimately it looks great on the outside, but once you get on the inside and understand the culture, it might be different. You know, it really comes down to asking questions when you're ready and not being, I'll say, timid in terms of signaling what you want to do and what you want out of your career. 
as as much as you can have those th- type of conversations and be forthright about it, be comfortable in your own skin and have those conversations, I think the better. Some co- some early, I think, managers who are new to their manager careers may not be used to that, but I think it is something that if you're comfortable as an individual contributor having those conversations, it always re- benefits you as well as the, the company that you're working for. That's a good point, Joe, because we had a recent guest, Mike Wood, talked about doing a form of interview called an informational with Microsoft when he pursued a, a role there, and that's now where he works. But it's more of a exactly that. What do you do? What's it like there talking to a hiring manager or maybe just an individual contributor to really get an idea of what the company is like? So I kind of feel like as we've been talking, we as individual contributors, because you and I are, right, we we may not always realize how much change our role has gone through since we've been in it until we co- try to convey what we do to someone else on the outside who wants to to get a job there you know i just that's a great point yeah i'm i'm sure it's if i were to take systems processes what i do day to day from day 1 of job xyz to a year later or 5 years later it would be very different and and maybe not like noticeably month to month, but start to finish, I, I think very different. Yeah. Over the course of years, if you, if we evaluate how we started and what we're doing now, I think fundamentally there's been a lot of change that you have to really step back and look at those things. Mm-hmm. Cause I think in many respects, it's that perspective that we may not have until we have that type of conversation. Someone may be curious about what we do and then having to explain that really forces us to really look and assess, you know, the landscape in a little bit different fashion. It's yeah. uh, it's curious that you mentioned that because I think in many regards, we can have the same title, you know, for several years, but what we do day in, day out will be different from year to year. 100%. Because the organization has a different set of priorities from year to year. And so oftentimes that means we're adjusting what we're focused on, the skill sets that we grow and what have you from year to year. But that also gives us an opportunity to say, does this still align with what my group, my career goals are? And I think uniquely that's something that we have to be cognizant of is when we're not aligned to, you know, what our companies want or the role needs and we want to do something different, you know, when is it time to have those, you know, career change conversations or the career transition conversations? You know, one of the things I've heard you say in our previous conversations was that in a career transition or even I want to be promoted, that's something that you should be approaching your manager about. Absolutely. One of the things that I think we often lose sight of as individual career uh, contributors is depending on the size of our teams, you know, most managers, if they're a first-line manager, will manage seven to 15 individual contributors, let's just say, you know, for sake of argument. So that means they have to have career conversations, one-on-ones with seven to 15 folks. So they're not always focused just on us. And I think it's easy to lose sight of that when we get into our, you know, day-to-day functions and doing what we do is that our managers have other things that that they need to do not only, you know, look after our peers, right. Have conversations with our peers, similar to 
the type of conversations we want to have with every one of those peers, but they also have requirements and needs that they have to fulfill for their leaders as well. So there's always this pull from their leadership on priorities for their leadership. So managers are, I give them a lot of credit for having to balance a lot of those needs. One, to really put enough attention to your individual staff members that work for you, as well as be attentive to your leadership to make sure that organizationally, you're, you know, the team that you're responsible for are, is contributing to the organizational metrics. So it's, it's a balancing act that leaders have to do, which means that we aren't you know, the first, second, or third things on their, on their minds. And that's why I've said before that it's up to us really to signal the type of conversation we want to have, when we want to have it, and give them, you know, some indication of, you know, what our expectations are. And then they can really appropriately, you know, work with us on that. And I think that's, you know, the, the only way that reasonably it works out, because like I said, it's, it's while we may be entirely focused on our success, managers have to really focus on everybody's success, including their own. Yeah, and there's nothing worse than expecting something from leaders and not getting it, but you never really talked it through and made it super clear. You just kind of thought and assumed, and anger is the result of unmet expectations. I heard that at a marriage seminar once, and that's exactly <laughs> what it made me think of when you were talking. Yeah, and you know that's especially true when it comes to promotions. I worked for four years here at VMware, and I think it wasn't until the third year I was here before I started having conversations about career progression. So I went through three years of really just getting into my work here at VMware before I even really looked up to see where I was at and whether I was really ready to do something different. You know, I was having a great deal of fun. I was learning a lot uh, when I came into the company. But ultimately, I got to a point in time where I was ready to, okay, what's next? What's something new? And it took me to really do that. You know, I learned by observation that, you know, I was on a very, you know, a fairly large solution architecture team. And I learned by observation that some folks were able to really progress and move on. And I always wondered, well, how that, how did that happen? Because I wasn't approached to, to, you know, by my leader to, to really be promoted. And that's why I said, okay, maybe it takes me to, to really initiate that conversation. But once I did, those conversations were regular. So we had monthly one-on-ones on how to do it. And there was a lot of it that I learned that was going to be on me. Because like I said, I knew that there was a, a great pull on my manager's time to really do more than just focus on what I needed to do. So once I learned that, it was eye-opening. And that's not something that I was familiar with coming from my military career as an officer. That first four years in my military career, it's fairly structured in terms of the promotion process. After two years, you know, I came in as a second lieutenant when I graduated uh, college. Two years later, I was promoted to first lieutenant. Two years later, I was promoted to captain. So it was like, that's what I knew at the outset. You know, civilian career progression, I had no idea about how to get that done. 
And so when I was at EDS, instead of being promoted within, you know, a single job, I had a tendency to really say, well, I'm ready to do something different. I do a different job, but it wasn't really a promotion. When I came to here to VMware, I really liked what I was doing as a, as a, as an architect, but I was like, well, how do I get to the next level of architecture, you know, in that career ladder, what's that look like? And so really it took, you know, me really being focused on that space and then being interested in having that conversation with my manager to really understand that it took a long time for me to get there from when I started in the military. It was, it wasn't something that I picked up in, in two days or a year or two years. It took several years for me to understand that. And it's interesting because at, I won't necessarily stereotype smaller organizations, but I would imagine it's a little more common. It, it may not be extremely clear what you need to do for a promotion and what the expectation is to get to the next title. Right. Sometimes yeah. to your point, it's okay. You're going to, we're going to have you take on this extra responsibility and we'll pay you a little bit more, but it's not necessarily a promotion. I don't know that that's a bad thing, but you know, you're still getting, you're still getting more money that way. I just. Absolutely. Yeah. That's interesting that you mentioned that. And I think it goes down to how long that company has been there. You know, how long, you know, how, how, how big are they? Cause I think organizationally you have to look at the size of the company the larger the company in terms of the number of employees, there's a tendency for more structure in terms of their career fields and career laddering. When I came into VMware in 2013, I think we were less than 8,000 employees. It's a much flatter organization at that point. Now, I think we're probably closer to 30,000 now. I'm not quite sure. Closer to 40, actually. Yeah. So if you think about that, there's much more structure in terms of how the company of a you know 40,000 employees looks at job titles, job codes, career ladder within those job families and what have you than a company that's of 5,000 to 8,000 or a startup. So it's interesting that you bring that up and it gives us a different challenge and a different opportunity depending on the size of the company. I work you know as an example I worked for Accenture for like a hot second, 18 months before I joined VMware. I think at that point in time, when I joined Accenture out of EDS, HP Enterprise Services, Accenture was 160,000 employees worldwide. So you can imagine, and they've been in, you know, around for a long time, I think 40 plus years at that point in time. So they were very structured. So their job families were pretty well organized and they had to be you know, for a company of that size. Oh, yeah. VMware was the smallest company employee count that I had worked for when I joined VMware. So like I said, less than eight, less than 8,000 folks. When Air Force was, I think, 120,000 folks when I was in the military. I went to EDS, which was 120,000. And they were acquired by uh, HP, which was 120,000, combined with EDS, which was 120. So 240,000 employees, Accenture, 160,000 employees. I had always worked for a large company with lots of structure. But with lots of structure means lots of le levels of the of the ladder or that you'd have to climb up. I found a unique opportunity here at VMware, but it's always always comes down to I think that curiosity, having that conversation, and being curious about what that progression looks like. Because as you said, it may not be defined depending on the size of the company, and you won't necessarily know that unless you start asking those type of questions. 
it's a hot job market at the time we're recording this, right? In the technology space, there is are it? talent shortages. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. That's what I hear. That's what people are telling me, right? Hot job market. A lot of people are, are getting different jobs, better jobs. I hope that if you are at a smaller organization, that they're doing more things to retain talent because nobody likes turnover, especially if you're good at your job. The company really doesn't want to lose you. Now, frankly, to Joe's point, sometimes to move up and progress, that progression level just doesn't exist at your company. And if it doesn't, okay, cool. You just have to accept the fact that you have to move to a different organization. Maybe it's a larger organization, you know, with a massive technology group instead of just four or five people. And it just may be a a product of organizational structure and, and things of that nature. Yeah, I'm I'm also a huge proponent of looking at lateral roles within a company as well. I've taken a number of what I'd consider lateral transitions into roles that were not quite related to anything that I had done before within the same company because I was, one, curious. Uh, I had a desire to learn to do something different. And ultimately, each of those have been additive in terms of my body of work and my experience set. And I've utilized everything that I've learned. But that's also an opportunity that I don't think enough people within IT really consider is, you know, depending on the size of the company we work for, there are multiple areas of that company where they need folks, or they may have opportunities for folks like ourselves to say, hey, look, I'm look, I'm interested in doing something new. I'm here in the company already. Where can I go? And I had a number of those opportunities, not only here at VMware, you know, I've, I've tra- you know, transitioned like three or four times to different roles and different teams, but I did that at EDS like three or four times. I was, uh, I did category management, which was in the global procurement organization. I did project and program management, leading folks who basically, you know, did all the engineering level work. And I was really responsible for matrix management of those engineering resources. And then I got back into architecture, technical architecture. And so all of those things I did because I wanted to do something new, give myself a new challenge. And those opportunities were afforded to me because I asked for them. veterans out there who might be listening to this in your families, we just want to say thank you for your service. Joe mentioned that he went into the Air Force as a way to pay for college. If you're close to entering the workforce and maybe not sure what you want to do, that might be a really interesting entry point for you. Because Joe points out that the skills you learn in the military can be helpful to a person no matter what they did in any future civilian career. And if you're transitioning out of the military, there are a lot of communities such as the Power of Difference community Joe's a member of that help veterans get through the transition back to civilian life. A lot of foundations out there and a lot of companies are looking to make it easier for veterans to to integrate themselves back into the civilian workforce. 
don't think it has to just be in the technology field. There are a lot of companies looking to to make it easier on our veterans. I liked Joe's focus on being curious about what other people do. Are we being curious enough? It can open up new opportunities, but also it can help build a really deep connection with someone. Just by asking them what they do and continuing to show interest and and ask questions about it, you might find that you have a lot more in common with someone else than you ever realize, and who knows when that connection might be able to get you a new opportunity. I'll also say that you probably aren't going to wake up one day and just say, I need to do something different. I think that people have those small thoughts about doing something different along the way. Little instances that eventually build to a head where you are really frustrated and need to do something different. So that reflection that Joe encourages us to do on whether our role is still in alignment with our goals, that's an important one. And I think that he'll touch more on that next week. Hopefully that your manager will be supportive if you do want to do something different. Just make sure that you have a good enough relationship with your manager where you feel open enough sharing that. And maybe go back to episode 45 on career conversations with your manager and see if there's additional advice there that maybe can help you. I know John talked about in that episode and possibly in others about owning the conversation and the agenda or owning the agenda for the career conversations with your manager because it really is not something that they are thinking about for you, the employee under them, all the time. It is something that you can be thinking about or have it constantly at the forefront, but a frontline manager has to be focused on several members of a team, the entire team as a whole, and helping them all. So giving them the tools to help you is something that you can control and and help them do for you. And think back to even episode 13 with Tom Delicati, where Tom was able to sell the organization he eventually worked for on creating a new position for him that fit the skill set and delivered a lot of value to that organization. So that maybe that's an option as well. Last thing I'll say is don't forget about the lateral moves. It may be that you don't want to climb the specific ladder for the type of role you're in to the to get to that next title. Maybe you want to go and and move to an adjacent area. It may not be considered a promotion, but it can build you some valuable skills that could come in handy down the road and just make you more valuable to an organization. So stay tuned next week for part two as we continue Joe's story, and you'll find out about how he took some of those lateral moves and what they were like. Maybe they and those types of moves would be right for you. Just a reminder, we want people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter, at NerdJourney. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore, flying solo for now. From our buddy John White, at B Journeyman, signing off. <laughs>